Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at the Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright, thirst quenched. (laughs) Today we're talking about Minute 95, which begins with Clint unsure of Loki's whereabouts and ends with Natasha compromised. Back on the show is Matthew Fox. Hello, Matthew. Hi, I'm glad to be here, and I hope some people are getting to watch the stream, if you're members, because both Pete and Andy have dogs that keep wandering through the camera, and they are <laughs> A-plus adorable. <laughs> very sleepy right now. Yeah. He's very sleepy. Yeah. Mine's just a big fluff ball. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Minute 95, continuing our conversation in the sick bay between Natasha and Clint. The beginning of this minute, you know, uh, in the last minute, Natasha asked, I don't suppose you know where, or here she says, I don't suppose you know where Loki is. And he says, didn't need to know, didn't ask. Um, is this, I mean, I guess it's just kind of speaking to the military mind that, that Clint has. Is that, is that kind of the, the way that we take that? Okay. Andy, I'm so glad you asked. This is my <laughs> first, my po- point, the first. I feel like we have talked in the past on this very show about the level to which characters are lucid even while they are under mind control, right? This seems to indicate that there is that he knows less than we have assumed he is able to communicate than he did earlier in the movie. Am I reading that wrong? This feels like new information to me that they have had us believe one thing, and now we are to believe something else. Yeah, I actually took it as making sense, because to me it goes back to Loki's speech about the freedom from being free. Because I do think that one of the things that he's getting at there, and it, it's funny, like if you watch a lot of stuff on TikTok, like obviously I don't think anybody actually wants, well, I wish I could say nobody wants the, the Loki fascism. Of course, that's Let's not talk politics. I apologies. But like, <laughs> you know, I think there is kind of a common sentiment, particularly about, you know, younger people about, you know, life's really hard. And sometimes it'd be nice if someone just like told me what I need to know and made the decisions for me and things like that. And we all think like, okay, that's fun if you're consenting to it in a way, but like actually choosing someone else doing that to you is is not okay. But that's Loki's whole idea is he says, like, the problem with humanity is that you have all these choices, that you have all of these decisions to make, that you have all this thing, you want to be subjugated, you want to just have me decide everything for you. I think that really gives an understanding as to what it is that happens when someone gets under the mind control, which is that if Loki needs you to understand something, Loki gives you the information you need, but in, in case he doesn't, there's nothing you need to know. Because there's nothing, there's no thoughts you have to have. You get to just be this empty-headed, yes, Loki, no, Loki, I'll do the thing. I'm saying that in a way that makes it sound appealing. That's not my intention at all. I'm just saying that I think that's what, the way Loki sees it, and so it makes sense that that's what he would do with his Mind Stone, is he would tell, like, Jeremy, like, okay, I need you to use your brain to help me figure out how to get the materials we need. And so Hawkeye comes up with the 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 eyeball plan. But if, if there's no plan that, Loki is making that requires Hawkeye to know where he is or what he's doing or when exactly the plot's going to go forward. There's no reason why Hawkeye would know that. 
I think that's a fair assessment and also narratively convenient because it actually addresses, uh, it allows us to address all of the in- potential inconsistencies, I think, that we've seen, not just in Hawkeye, but also in Selvig. Yeah. I don't know, Andy, what am I misreading? Well, no, I think that's, uh, you know, a big element there is it, it seems all just kind of plot convenient to have them know what they need to know, not know what they don't need to know. And it's all because the Mind Stone is doing its thing. And I mean... You know, Eric also has the the crazy passion for science that we always say is potentially driving him for a lot of his decisions. And he'd probably be doing all this anyway, given the yeah. chance, whether he had been mind controlled or not. Exactly. Selvig for science 24. But yeah. uh, the fact that Clint in this particular place uh, just doesn't know anything. I don't know. It, it seems a little uh, well, a couple things. It seems far fetched. It also seems um uh, like I, I feel like they all had to be part of this plan. So suddenly, for him to not know anything, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like you know how you got here, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like he knows that he got onto the helicarrier somehow. There's never any question there. Well, remember that he does say, "How many agents did I kill?" And as yet, we saw him literally fire arrows into at least two agents. Yeah. So right. And again, I, I, I fully agree that this is 100% plot contrivance. But I think that maybe part of the plot, the contrivance is that there's some kind of a fog that when, when the control of Loki is lifted, that the exact details of what you did with Loki is also listed, lifted. Okay. But I, I think also there is a very scripted element where we, because if, if Barton said, oh yeah, he's going to Stark Tower, everything's taking place there, that takes away the moment that we're going to have a few minutes later of Tony being the person to figure that out because he it, it has to be Tony for this story because he's the one who built Stark Tower. He's the one with the energy. He's the one who's got the 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 clever line about Loki wanting to have his name on the biggest building in the sky. Like all of that sort of stuff needs to come from him for that realization to happen. And unless they had scripted this where we were intercutting between these two scenes at the exact same time and both of them come to that, they have that reveal at the same moment. It just, I think for script purposes, they really wanted Tony to be the person. And so script-wise, it Barton had to not know. And so it just, it ends up feeling uh, just kind of weak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're, I mean, you're exactly right. And that's what I was thinking. Like, there, is, there are ways to solve this potential issue, right? There are ways to do it editorially, to cross-cut, to have... Tony figure it out first, cut back to them saying, oh, yeah, it's a Stark Tower. Tony's like somehow it it, it, it it gives Tony the win, but also doesn't deprive Hawkeye from his narrative awareness. Although it does make you wonder, like, if, if Hawkeye had been aware of all of this sort of stuff, the minute he wakes up, if we weren't dealing with kind of the craziness of of pop art warhol uh he would wake up and go oh my god we've got to get to stark tower yeah, we've got to get to stark tower <laughs> yeah. cathcart tower hotel mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah that's exactly where we are fish named wanda great movie <laughs> it's funny because we talk about how modern movies are so much faster than older movies and i've re-watched the original star wars movies the 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 original trilogy and new hope and all them with some younger folks who always say that they're so slow and I just want to tear my hair out. Like, what do you mean? And then I watch a movie like this and I realize part of what these movies are doing, and I do think it's effective, even if it's annoying when I go back and rewatch, is that they're going so fast that you're never really sitting and pondering the questions that we're now pondering. 
because it's always like the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And so it's, it, you know, it's kind of like they can do a lot of things with, with just like a, a wave of their hand. But then when you go back and look at it or think about it, you're like, well, well, well wait a minute, that, that didn't actually make any sense. Well, like, lest we forget, in A New Hope, we actually have a sequence where our principal characters find a locker room and get dressed on the Death Star. Like, that would not be in today's, like, we, we never have a locker room scene in the Avengers unless it's a post-credit bit. Hey, now, we do actually have Steve walking into a, a locker room to get his outfit. <laughs> okay, that's a good point. We do have a locker room scene. <laughs> Very but well But you lit. get my point. Like, yeah, this, is a, uh, th- this is, that's a, exactly the sort of thing that we don't have is, you know, we got messy. If they didn't have that scene, we'd be doing Star Wars minute by movie by minute. And we'd say, how did they get so clean? Well, they had a locker room. <laughs> there, there is a famous clip of Mark Hamill. I think it's on the... Um the David Letterman show, I'm not sure which, but where he talks about how he said to Harrison Ford at one point, like, wait, why is my hair so dry in a scene shortly after that? And Harrison Ford famously says, kid, it's not that kind of movie. Um, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this yes. has been with us for time memorial. <laughs> yes, it yeah, is. Exactly, exactly. We do get to finally see what happens with the water, Natasha. Apparently, it was just part of her her plan all along. I'm going to pour this water and walk away, and I just will wait and see if Clint actually gets up to drink it, because he does. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Somebody finally drinks the water. It's great to know that it was all... He is. Chekhov's water was drunk. They they have some history with water, I'm sure. (laughs) Yes. The water of Budapest. (laughs) Wait, let me ask something, because... By now, because in the next movie, they very clearly establish they're not romantically partners. He has this whole other secret family that she did know about, and she's basically an aunt to their children and all that. In this movie, if you remember kind of watching it before we know that, do you think they were trying to establish the idea or at least do a a pump fake to the idea of Natasha and Barton having a romantic or a future possible or a past romantic connection? That's a good question. And thinking about my place when I saw this in the theaters, I honestly don't know. I don't know where my head would have been. I think I would have probably leaned toward they've potentially had something in the past, but now it's something where they are just working partners and they're just very close the way that it's portrayed. But I never got a sense from this film that they were going to try building a romance out of it. I felt like if there had been a romance between these two, it had already happened and now it's kind of like post-romance kind of friendship. Yeah, I think so too. I this is another one of those examples of pot, a relationship points that I just don't think they had figured out what they were going to do yet. Right? And part of it is because they didn't know what to do with Natasha. Yeah. Right? Like how are they going to explain her relationship both with Hawkeye and then weird relationship stuff with Banner Hulk. Like, it just ends up being weirdly complicated. I don't think they had a good answer. And this was enough, right? This was sufficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's true. I think I I am very happy that they didn't become a romantic connection and again show that, like, these two people can be friends. And and I I now know that I read that back into this movie, and I was kind of curious how if people could remember because I, I think I walked out of this movie being kind of glad that they didn't kiss at the end or they didn't have some like you know romantic moment. Oh, yeah, that would have been bad. Yeah, that would have been a awful. That would have been yeah, yeah, a little frustrating for sure. 
we have this whole idea of them having to stop Loki. And this is an interesting moment where, you know, Natasha's like, we got to stop him. And Barton's like, who's we? I, I like this idea that even though, I mean, at this point, there really is no Avengers. Thor and Banner are off the helicarrier. Tony and Steve are kind of not into it at this point. Everybody's been fighting, but Natasha is still dead set on figuring out what what we need to do to figure out how to stop Loki. And if it's just you and me, then it's just you and me. And I actually, for her character, I think that's a really interesting and kind of important moment to have here that, like, if it's just her, she would still go right. and do what she could to stop to stop Loki. I think that's so much about her as a character. She's also a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. And let's stop for a second and wonder if there are any other jackbooted S.H.I.E.L.D. thugs on this paramilitary flying army craft like maybe there is a chance that they could lead a i don't know another team like does it always have to be the avengers i guess in this movie of course it does but yeah, of course where it does. This, it, it, i poke <laughs> that question because they're like once again where is everybody well yeah right well that speaks to actually this next line that barton says you're a spy not a soldier yeah now you want to wade into war what like explain this to me like uh, I mean, sure, she's a spy, but she's kind of a soldier, and we've definitely seen that. Uh, like, I don't know. Does this seem like a strange angle to play with her character? Andy, point the second. This was the other thing that has been on my list, because this line pretends to forget that the other footage that we have of Clint and Natasha together, they were in a war zone. They were, we saw them on the tiny screen shooting at stuff from behind a car. Mm -hmm. They were fighting. This wasn't spycraft. Was, this wasn't sneaking around wall footage. This was fighting in a big battle. So I don't, I, I feel like this line was written because it sounds good and it did sound good, but it does betray a little bit of her history. She is absolutely more than a spy. Well, especially because they've already raised the question of what does it mean to be a soldier earlier in the movie. Yeah. Where the context is a hero is someone who does what they think is right, and a soldier is someone who follows someone else's orders. And there was all that stuff about, like, are we Nick Fury's soldiers? And to this point, if there's any person who has been the most Nick Fury says jump, and so I say jump, it is Natasha. It's Natasha. And it was Clint until he became mind-controlled. And so, yeah, it, it it feels like they're using the word soldier in a very different way than they used it earlier in the movie, which doesn't really make sense. Well, and in the very next minute, which might be some of what you're right. talking about, because right. that's the moment where you have Steve and Tony talking about, have you ever lost a soldier? So we'll right. talk about that when we get into uh, the minute for uh, minute 96. Um, but this does also be, there's also this part of this conversation, like this minute is just like so full of things that I get so frustrated with because Barton has this, like, what did Loki do to you? And Natasha seems like, like broken. Like he, I just, he didn't, I just, I've been compromised. And it's like, yes, I don't know. Was she compromised? Because again, the way that that whole scene played out in the end was that she was putting all of this on as a ruse to get him to reveal information to her mm -hmm. and all of that. You're a monster and all of that sort of stuff was part of what she was doing. Yes. But now it's playing out like, no, he really did get to me, but I still ended up using it to my advantage. I, I, I mean, how are we meant to read that now? Yeah, it, it doesn't work 
particularly because earlier in the movie, we saw her again in a situation where she's pretending to be afraid and they're, they're dragging her chair over this big open pit. And yet she, you know, when she talks to Colston, she's like, oh no, I have this idiot exactly where I want him. The whole point is that she is completely in control. And yeah, it, it, it was so funny because I remember, I, I, I didn't remember exactly where that her line ends. It's when it ends with her. Like I've been compra. She doesn't even finish the word. I was like, wait, no, no, no. Tell me yeah. what happens the rest of the minute. <laughs> uh, it was funny because I watched it literally an hour before we started. She has certainly been compromised in the past. I don't think we've been given to see anything in terms of she's been compromised by Loki. I think Hulk and Barton were both compromised by Loki and she was put in situations where her ability to function were compromised by the fact that she had to deal with the two of them. But that seems like a real stretch. You know, we've talked a lot over the course of this season, uh, Matthew, about the director and the relationship, like just everything that's come out since with his relationship with women and the, the some of the awful stuff. Is, is there something here where this just seems like it was included here because of that view of like, yeah, she comes out on top, but she still had to have been broken. I think there probably is. And it's for me, it pales in relation to what happens in the second movie where like, I I thought the, the potential of a banner, Natasha, Bruce, Natasha relationship was really an interesting one until he talks about like, but I will always have this monster inside. And she says, Oh, I'm, and forgive me what I'm about to say is harsh because it's, but it's what the movie says. And I think it's awful. She basically compares her own inability to have children to being monstrous and, and horrible in a way that it's like just got a lot of people very angry. I think very, and, and like, cause again, what a cliche of a way to say a woman doesn't feel complete because of that. That, that felt very male written and misogynistic. And yeah, I think, so it's like, I kind of forget that that happened in this movie as well because it's, that's so much worse, at least as I think of it. But it is, this, I think, is part of that same thing. You know, I think that Joss Whedon is very good at writing very strong women who are all wearing very tight clothing and are very strong in exactly the way that a weaker man needs them, that, that they need a weaker man to help them. You know, I don't know exactly what Whedon's personal issues have affected his writing, but clearly he has had very bad relationships with women and abusing his power. And yeah, I don't think we can look at his characters without that lens being somewhat there and when we look at a moment like this, where it does seem like they're making her seem weaker in ways that are very kind of wrapped up in misogyny, you know, it's not a coincidence. I agree with all of those points and uh, point the two and a half uh, I, I, continues tomorrow because I think where this line ends, I've been compromised. Where it goes from there takes all of the baggage, the sort of genderized baggage and brings it back into straight up narrative confusion for me. So I I feel like there's this this has to continue and it the movie the the scene splits in an uncomfortable way for our structure. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and Monday's minute really because I mean today's Oh, today's uh, Friday. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know so, what days are anymore. <laughs> I know it's so hard. Well, I think because of all that, this is a good place to wrap up today's conversation. We will continue this conversation in Monday's episode with Minute 96 with Matthew for one last time. So let's wrap it up here. Matthew, tell everybody again about your podcast and where they can tune in. Superhero Ethics, great discussion of ethical, moral, theological, all sorts of great questions within superhero media. 
superhero media, we've expanded to be anything that kind of is genre or geeky or, you know, we decided that Queen's Gambit was just so good a show that um, chess is a superpower, as is karate, because we <laughs> Cobra Kai and uh, the very, very good storytelling that started in Cobra Kai that's now become incredibly contrived. But the, uh, you know, we, we talk about all that kind of stuff. And then Star Wars Universe podcast. We do episode-by-episode coverage of a lot of the new stuff that's coming out, as well as more general coverage of a lot of things. We actually did an episode that I'm really proud of that asked the question of, in a universe that doesn't know that Count Dooku was uh, a Sith Lord, but all it knows is that this crazy guy led a civil war because he thought the Republic was corrupt and was going to become a fascist state. Now that the Republic has become the Empire, a fascist state, how is Count Dooku remembered? And is he kind of like Che, you know, where people have posters on his wall because they think he stands for freedom, <laughs> even though they don't really know much about him? Uh, yeah, it was a really great discussion. And that, I think that's indicative of the kind of stuff that we get into a lot on both of those podcasts. So check all that out, theethicalpanda.com. And there you'll find how to email me, where to find me on TikTok, on Twitter, on all the places where we're creating content and where we'd love feedback. I love the idea that Count Dooku is just another like Banksy subject. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, you know, I want to see. I want to see amazing. the art. I want to see the art now. That's yeah, right. we're gonna have but to. But yeah, make like, that I mean, so if those who've seen Andor, there's a young kid in that who has written a political manifesto about you know freedom under the empire, and I wonder, like, is he quoting Dooku? Because so much of what Dooku says about the Republic is just going to take over. He was right. He didn't mean it, but he was right. Amazing. Oh my gosh, so funny. He was also fascist and terrible, to be clear, but... <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I have to go over to Mid-Journey right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that is it for today. We'll be back on Monday with Minute 96. Uh, so, Pete, thanks as always. Oh, Andy, will Clint be able to fly a plane yet? <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.